Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Today, I have two special guests. One is Martin Meyer, who is the immediate past president of the Meyer Foundation, and Alexis Chang, who's the partner and head of responsible investment Pacific at Mercer. In this episode, we gain an insight into the Meyer Foundation and their journey in transitioning to 100% sustainable or responsible investing. We discuss the portfolio objectives, the structure, its constraints, and how it's set up to make decisions. We talk about the Meyer Foundation and how they think about responsible investment goals and their engagement with Mercer to identify and transition to responsible investment compliant funds across all asset classes, particularly at a time when the marketplace is in transition from ESG 1.0 to ESG 2.0. We discuss whether market efficiency will erode ESG alpha. We talk about fundamental analysis and active management in the current environment. Finally, we wrap up the conversation talking about whether there are any challenges or trade-offs as we start to think about the ESG SDGs, particularly as we look to increase economic growth and infrastructure and at the same time protect the environment. I hope you enjoy the conversation. The My Foundation's been around for since the late 50s and it was endowed by my father's estate in 1992. So we've managed our own portfolio since that time. Uh, and it's a collection of assets that are managed by an investment committee of board members and outside experts. And uh, we manage with, as a family, had a very heavy equity bias or growth asset bias for probably the best part of a century, which has stood us in good stead. And uh, we're continuing that policy uh, at the moment. And we just ride out the volatility of the markets and this year has been very volatile, as we all know. And we didn't take money off the table, and nor did we uh, put money on the table. Can you give a bit more context around sort of the build-up? If you looked, uh, you drilled into the SAA of of the the portfolio, what would it look like? Well, it's it's not a balanced portfolio in the sort of conventional superannuation fund terms. As I said, it's very heavy uh, growth orientated with. Uh, Aussie equities, you know, strong bias there because of the franking credits and the high yield. Uh, international equities because of the growth we like and infrastructure. We, we don't hold bonds. Uh, we don't have those sorts of, you know, fixed interest type, uh, you know, long duration assets. Uh, and of course we like the income. We, we aim to spend our income every year. So we try and maximize that. Having said that, we do run the portfolio on a total return basis. Because we don't pay tax, we're in the end uh, agnostic as to whether our return comes through capital growth or income. But having said that, we, you know, we like to have a good, good cash yield to help us you know, make our grants every year. Um, it, but as I said, we ride the volatility of the markets. So some years and after the GFC, for instance, we did cut, trim our grant making by sort of 15, 20% for a year or two uh, and so on. So we just, that's life. We just have to manage to, the markets. 
in terms of the income as a percentage of the fund, have you got a particular percentage that you're looking to, to generate each year? We're aiming for three and a half to four percent um, of that order. Um, and you know, if we've got special projects and we want to spend more, we're happy to take some capital profits and, and you know, look at it at a total return basis and, and you know, create yield that way. Mm-hmm. Now, you've had a very public announcement about uh, Myers Foundation Responsible Investment Goals. Can you give a bit of context around what those goals are and what do they mean to the foundation? Uh, so three or four years ago, we did a, a five-year annual strategy plan. Uh, and part of that was to increase our commitment to social impact investing. And we made a number of direct social impact investments. Um, by their nature, they tend to be sort of venture capital-like. And we discovered that there are a huge amount of work for relatively small investments. They're quite high risk. One's been an outstanding success. One's essentially failed and one's <laughs> average. So we just, in the end, decided that that has a sort of a stream of uh, work to and develop our activity beyond grant making. We call it, you know, working our portfolio beyond grant making. So rather than just making grants every year, we wanted to make our portfolio work for us as well in, in the uh, uh, philanthropic space. We just said that social impact investing, you know, in that sort of uh, form was too hard. So that's when we started looking for funds, professionally managed, you know, large uh, investment funds that had ESG uh, aligned goals. And we started that journey probably 18 months ago, two years ago. Uh, We found two really good funds that we invested in about 15 months ago. And uh, then we made a commitment late last year to transition our portfolio to 100% ESG aligned by the end of 2022. That gave us three years to do that. We felt that was a reasonable timeframe. And then at the beginning of this year, I'd met uh, Mercer's and uh, Alexis and uh, her boss Helga the University of Melbourne's investment committee. And I just felt that I could, we could engage with Mercer to help speed up that process. I have to say there was a large push from younger members of the family to move along this ESG journey. I think I would characterize their interest as sort of ESG 1.0 and a sort of very simple exclusionary strategy. You know, let's sell Woodside and BHP and da da da, and and rather than and that's a sort of negative screen. I was and I had good exposure at this at the University of Melbourne because I chaired the investment committee there. Doing this well, ESG investing is much more complex than you think, and I wanted to do it where it was a positive driver of performance rather than a simple negative screen. And I characterised it as ESG investing 2.0. So I just understood that nurses could help us on that journey to speed up the whole process and find, you know, make the transition. And as it is, after one year, we're at 90% aligned. Uh, and the last 10% would be a little difficult because we're in some uh, long-dated closed-end funds that are difficult to transition, but they will over time. 
I'm curious, you, you mentioned some of your social investing that was a little bit difficult to to get working and it's obviously very hit and miss like VC is typically. There's a bit of a challenge here where you can keep investing in the market and earn enough return to then do some of the philanthropic pieces or do more of these social investing philanthropic sort of pieces and then you know that's your key part of the ESG. How do you think about the balance between look, the market providing enough return to then achieve some of the foundation's goals versus actually just giving money to particular projects that that align with your values? Well, our view is that uh, if you invest in good funds and ESG-aligned funds, you'll be doing good in any case. And if the returns are strong, then we can make lots of grants. You know, we aim for a total return of four and a half, five percent 5% plus inflation. And if we can earn, and we have earned double digit for over 25 years, if we can deliver, continue to deliver that, then you can make terrific grants. And we're happy to invest in all sorts of high risk things. In fact, part of our philosophy is that the philanthropic dollar should be taking the highest risk in the market for, for initiatives and projects to help the community. Higher than the government, you know, is level of risk appetite higher than obviously commercial uh, funds and, and financial funds. So we view every grant as a, it's a very high risk, but we, we like that. If we're not making investments or as we call it bets in on high risk initiatives, then we're not doing our job. And in fact, we have a little uh, expression, it ban the boring and back the bold. And that's what we want to do. Now, if we're earning good returns from ESG-aligned funds, then we can do more of that. But at the same time, our portfolio is working for us on the community benefit front as well. Last thing on on the social impact piece, social housing has become very prominent as one of the ways to um, address a particular issue as part of the UN Sustainable Development Goals too. How do you think about sustainable housing? Is that a, a part of your thinking with the portfolio and the foundation? Not specifically, no. We haven't sought out specific funds who are investing in social housing. Having said that, we are invested in funds that use the UN SDGs, more or less of them, uh, depending on the fund. And social housing is, is part of that process. But we have not sought out the, uh, specific uh, social housing funds. Alexis, I'll switch to you now. Uh, Martin's given a pretty interesting description of what he sees as ESG 1.0 to 2.0. Curious to get your thoughts and Mercer's approach to thinking about ESG and, and the transition that we've seen in ESG, particularly over the last 10 years as well. Sure. Thanks, Alex. Um, I like Martin's characterization of ESG 1.0 as being sort of negatively screened and avoiding the bad actors. I think, um, so I've been working in ESG investing for 17 years now, initially in the US, then in Europe, and now in Australia. And I think with the launch of the Principles for Responsible Investment back in uh, 2006, we saw what is now considered maybe ESG 1.5 with a focus on ESG integration and active ownership. When the PRI was first launched, it was only perhaps a, a small segment of the market that was willing to commit to that. But that has really become the market norm now. And any um, institutional investor of size will be backing the PRI, whether formally or informally. 
what we've seen particularly in 2020 and perhaps a little bit in 2019 is a shift to not just ESG integration, but um, a focus on outcomes. So how are my investments supporting the kind of um, sustainable goals I'd like to see in the community? And at Mercer, we refer to that as being a future maker. So saying I can be a future taker and just be aware and conscious of the way the future is forming up, or I can try and influence that future. And so we're starting to see many more funds that don't just integrate ESG in, in order to manage risk and generate return, but they seek to do that and deliver a positive impact uh, or a positive outcome. And so in, in undertaking some of the research we've done with the Meyer Foundation, we've been able to identify those fund managers that are excellent investors and are generating great returns, but are also delivering um, positive outcomes with those investments. Do you feel there's some sort of a, a constriction or a constraint that, you know, as you start to move into ESG, that some particular asset classes are a little bit harder to get the the right sort of funds that are aligned um, to, to the ESG goals or the sustainable development goals particularly? There are probably some asset classes for which it's more challenging to demonstrate that alignment or to integrate ESG. And interestingly, they kind of fall at either extreme end of the risk spectrum. So government bonds, particularly in developed market government bonds are often more challenging to align to the sustainable development goals or to ESG principles. Now, having said that, we are seeing some governments actually issue green bonds or impact bonds or even COVID bonds. So even within sovereign bonds, there's probably some opportunity for SDG aligned investments. But uh, if you think about the total universe of possible investments in sovereign bonds, the opportunity set is going to be pretty narrow there. At the other end of the spectrum, hedge funds or, you know, absolute return type funds often struggle to integrate ESG because they're focused on derivatives and very short-term trading strategies. But even there, we're starting to see some alternatives and hedge fund managers really integrate ESG. So I've, I've heard discussions around rather than excluding poor ESG actors, why not short them and take a, a you know, more high risk approach. Um, so I would say at the moment, those asset classes, sovereign bonds within developed markets and hedge funds are the most challenging. But even there, we're seeing some pretty innovative developments. It's a dangerous game shorting uh, anything in this particular market with so much liquidity uh, <laughs> flying in, at, it seems like, every week. I'm curious around ESG because it's it's used, obviously, as a synonymous term with many different things, whether it's sort of climate, the governance piece, with environment um, and social impact. And, and we've talked about this transition from 1.0 to 1.5, now 2. How much do you feel that ESG it needs to be actually better defined around what's actually happening, particularly on the governance space and the social aspects? You know, the climate piece seems a little bit more well-defined. Um, how do you think about ESG more broadly? And I'm curious, Alexis, on, on what you've seen change, particularly over the last few years. So I think historically, when um, investment managers talked about ESG investing, they were primarily focused on integrating material ESG factors into the investment process. So that would mean something like considering a price on carbon in the way they value energy stocks. If the if a if a carbon tax were introduced, what would that do to the attractiveness of an investment in uh, fossil fuel, you know, oriented company? And if the price if the risk was 
right, you might buy that investment regardless of what that did for climate change. So ESG investing, to my mind, was really focused on integrating ESG into the valuation and investment decision-making process and ensuring that you're getting the right reward for the unit of risk. I think the developments in the industry have now moved on to say it's not just about risk and reward, it's about the kind of outcomes those investments will lead to. Um, and that goes beyond just the integration to also thinking about the, the outcome or the impact of those investments. Uh, in terms of jargon, I think the responsible investment industry is very guilty of overcomplicating the discussion. We love three-letter acronyms that mean different things to different people. And that's why having a, a common lexicon, or uh, I don't even like this word, taxonomy, is useful. So one of the recommendations of the recently launched um, Australian Sustainable Finance Roadmap was to establish a taxonomy so that everyone from the consumer to the trustee knows what we're talking about when we say ESG or when we say impact investing. I think that would be very helpful because at the moment everyone relies on their own definitions. And so we may be using the same words, but meaning different things. So having a common lexicon or taxonomy um, as recommended by the Australian Sustainable Finance Roadmap would be very useful. I'll go back to you, Martin, when you talk about sustainability and you mentioned some of the junior members in, in the family have you know got more stronger views. Do you see a lot more stronger views around sustainability more broadly rather than just the environmental piece, but like through supply chains, thinking about um, what sustainable capitalism maybe even means to them? Do you see that sort of pressure coming through? No, that in our family, and when you say junior, some of them are over in their 40s, um, they're focused absolutely on the climate. I mean, for them, it really is a climate emergency. They're going to be living through this and their children and their grandchildren. Um, that's the primary driver of what they're doing. I mean, that's not to say that they're not interested in social issues around the world. Of course they are. And uh, one of our fund managers is doing, for instance, uh, really interesting work in slavery, in, you know, in supply chains and things like that. And we can talk to that when we talk to them. So they're engaged with that. I think just following up on a couple of Alexis's comments, um, and we talk about the lexicon, shared value is, an, is another way of thinking of what good companies are now doing. And, and shared value is a, a sort of organisation that's operating now around the world. It's helping companies achieve good social, environmental, ESG outcomes whilst at the same time being good for business. And that's really what this 2.0 is all about. And if you, if you, you should follow it up and have a look at what the shared value concept means and how it's doing it. Um, and the whole point here is that it makes good investment sense. You are investing in companies that have a wind behind them, the whole community, the economy, the governments around the world, uh, are pushing in this direction. So you're investing in companies that are investing with a tailwind instead of investing in companies that are battling into headwinds. So by definition, growth for these companies can be much higher than you know, GDP growth rates, enormous growth rates, some of them. Uh, and uh, it's just, it makes good investment sense. And I've, invest, I've managed money myself um, for a decade in the market. And you know, you've got to look for angles to help you understand where the growth is coming from 
and what it's likely to do going forward and therefore the price you're prepared to pay for it. It's interesting you say that. And I, whenever I hear that discussion, it takes me back to university finance and, and you think about Porter's five forces and, and what mm. actually makes up a good business and, and what true fundamental analysis is. It feels like we've moved away from fundamental, fundamental analysis when you think about the amount of passive flows we've seen. But what you've just described there is actually going back to basics, um, which is understanding the supply chain, understanding the customers, understanding the business, the management, and what actually is a good fundamental business, um, and then thinking about valuation. Is, is that a fair assumption? It is, and it, you're investing in companies that have thought about that and are doing all of that in good ESG terms. Now, I could foresee in a decade's time, for instance, when this is all very run-of-the-mill and there's no sort of capacity to generate alpha by investing in this way, but that's probably a decade away. I think there's a terrific period in front of us, investment period, where good fund managers who do this well, who invest in companies who do this well, there's a great opportunity to create significant alpha. Curious on on the G, the the governance factor. Um, it historically was a was a very clear factor for for driving returns. We've seen a lot of these new tech firms with basically different voting rights for different shareholders. Um, and we've seen some issues around sort of the poor governance that's out there. Curious around how much focus do you put on the governance piece uh, when you think about the total ESG? Well, again, I mean, I've been on the boards of many public companies and uh, private companies and so on. Um, governance is critical. Good governance leads to good leadership and the choice of good senior management and then almost by definition, you need those conditions to in order to perform well. And you've only got to see what's happened with like Rio or some of the banks and others where governance goes off the rails. The whole leadership of the organization goes off the rails, their performance uh, goes off the rails. You have serious problems. In the very, very short term, it doesn't make a huge difference. Over the medium term, it makes every every point of difference. Do you um, Go on. I was going to say, do you feel that because of your foundation and your real, true, long-term perspective that these issues, you're allowed to think about them more deeply than maybe some of the other pension funds, which claim to be much longer term, but then operating in a very competitive environment and they need to keep thinking about where they are on a performance league table, but you've got the ability to look 20, 30, 40 years out? Uh, yes, and I'm trying to convince other uh, philanthropic funds, some of them much bigger than us, to think this way. I think there's a great opportunity for them to be doing a more good for the community through the management of their portfolio and enjoying better financial returns. And that's really the reason for Mercer and us, you know, sort of putting the message out there that in, in one sense, you can have your cake and eat it too. I don't think it'll last forever. <laughs> I mean, the decade shows time the opportunity for alpha in this sort of space may have been diminished, but I think right now there's a great opportunity. That's a perfect place to switch to you, Alexis, and, and no pressure with uh, alpha potentially degrading um, because of the, the increased interest, right? That's market efficiency working, actually. Curious around how do you think about um, maybe this alpha opportunity and, and also um, to Martin's point around sort of the timing aspect. You, you work across both endowments and, and pension funds. How do you think about that timing element? 
Sure. I think in terms of market efficiency and market pricing, I mean, we would like to see ESG rightly priced in and to be the de facto standard for every investment so that you didn't need an ESG index and a, a standard index. Having said that, I think um, sustainable investing works best within an active management style um, because if you're trying to own the whole market, not all companies will always be sustainable. You need that um, wisdom and insight to really understand the trends that are driving the market and how you can zero in on those and take a bit more risk through an active management approach and capture that alpha. So I do think um, active management when it comes to sustainable investing is the way to go. And that with that active approach, you can generate alpha for quite some time by being nimble and, um, you know, identifying those sustainability-oriented tailwinds that can really unlock value, both in public and private markets. I think sustainable investing in private markets has a lot of potential. You know, there's been a lot of focus on the infrastructure needed to drive a sustainable future, and a lot of the capital for that infrastructure is going to come from private markets rather than from government going forward. Um, in terms of time horizon, I think um, you can do well over, you know, the short and the long term in sustainable investing, although during certain periods in the market, there may be slightly less upside for more constrained, actively managed sustainable funds. So um, because I cover, when I say Pacific, I work with clients both in Australia and New Zealand, as well as in Asia. And in Asia, there is still a view that if I invest in ESG funds, I'm going to give up um, investment returns because I'm going to avoid investing in certain kinds of stocks. Now, over a specific period, some of those stocks might do well and you might have a slightly lower return, but over a full business cycle, we um, don't expect that to be true. Obviously depends on how much um, tracking area you introduce, how much you carve out of the investable universe, but we think with good optimization and a decent time horizon, there's no reason why investing sustainably should cost you return. And rather, if you pick the right managers and you utilize an active investment approach, we do think you can outperform the broader market over that same time horizon. So whether you're a super fund with a multi-decade time horizon or you're a wealth manager managing um, assets for individual clients with a shorter time horizon, we still think it's worth um, investigating sustainable investing, but to do your due diligence because not all sustainable investment strategies are equal. Some of them will perform exceptionally well and others will underperform just due to the scale of the manager. So actually doing your due diligence is really important. To, to that, and that's, a good, and that's a good point for me to make a comment here about why we chose Mercer. Um, through my introduction to Mercer and Helga and Alex's University of Melbourne, I understood that they can survey, obviously, 10,000 plus investment strategies across the world. So there was no way that the Maya Foundation was going to be able to do diligence on even a thousand managers. So we just really even didn't know where to start properly. So that's, that was the secret for us was working with Merso was that they knew who were the uh, ESG aligned in managers and who was likely to perform well. Mm-hmm. Alexis, I, I'm I'm curious around you know moving up. I know Martin, you mentioned that you got to ninety percent very quickly, and then there's that ten percent that you're still trying to transition because they're in long dated funds. Is that this? You know, is it that easy for a lot of foundations and and super funds, or the or the 
are there going to be these legacy issues around long dated funds that maybe make it a little bit more challenging for different organizations to get to 100% ESG compliant or responsible investment um, aligned? Well, I think it's unsurprising that illiquid investments would take longer to transition. Um, you know, many illiquid investments will have a seven to 10 year lockup period. And so for those, you may not be able to make the same transition assessments, but what you can do is have conversation with the managers of those assets to say, how are you trying to make those private market investments as sustainable as possible? So you already own them. What can you do through your influence? Because oftentimes the um, general partners will have positions on the boards of these private companies. How can you uh, make those assets more sustainable from where you are now? Then when you renew those portfolio and you're looking to invest in new private market funds, you can make those same assessments like we've done with the Meyer Foundation to identify you know, the manager's capability in ESG integration and active management and contributing to the sustainable development goals. Within the client base I work with, which is both um, you know, superannuation funds as well as endowments and foundations and insurers, they will have different levels of appetite for illiquidity risk. So for those with a, with a higher tolerance for illiquidity, this may be a part of the portfolio that needs to be transitioned over a longer time horizon. But for some of the smaller foundations, they won't be comfortable with that level of illiquidity. And so their transition focuses primarily on public market investments, which can be done in a relatively straightforward way, provided um, the board and the investment committee have that vision and that commitment in mind to do the transition. And I give Martin and the Meyer Foundation, you know, real accolade for having the vision and being willing to back those decisions to actually transition funds. I think some, um, some funds would like to make those kinds of commitments, but they're a bit nervous to act on them. They're, they don't actually make the decision to move the money. And um, the Meyer Foundation has done that very quickly and with conviction. It's been beautiful to see. I'm curious, you just mentioned that for some funds it's difficult. What is difficult, do you think, for some of these funds to make this change at, at the speed that you, you would expect? Part of it is just a, a natural governance cycle that they will review asset classes one by one. And so it takes a while to get through a full portfolio. Another would be some sustainable investment strategies have a shorter track record than other peers. So for clients that only want to invest in something that's been around for three years, some of the newer strategies that we think look really interesting don't have a three-year track record yet. Um, those would probably be the two biggest hurdles. And then also doing the due diligence, you know, for clients of Mercer that can access our global manager research, we you know, we believe we add value for them by doing that research for them. But some um, asset owners want to do their own diligence and that just takes time. Mm -hmm. um, one of the final questions for you, Alexis, is around potentially thinking about trade-offs. Um, a lot of the, if you, even if you look at the UN Sustainable Development Goals, some of these things you can't have all one way and then reduced inequalities, for example, another, there, there are some trade-offs there. How do you think about some of these particular issues um, you know, do you, do you have a, a philosophy or do you work with each investor and try and work out what their philosophy is? 
So I struggle with the term trade-off, but I do understand what you're saying. And I think when we work with clients that are trying to invest sustainably, we always start off with their beliefs and trying to help them articulate what is it that you believe and what is it that you're trying to achieve. And once you've established those ESG investment beliefs, you can then come back to them again and again. Um, and so one example is to remember that companies or um, assets both produce something, a product or a service, and they run a business. So they have an impact both in what they do and in how they do it. And so in thinking about a sustainable investment strategy, it's important to not only think about what a company produces, but also how they manufacture that product, how they manage their supply chain, how they're a good employer, how they pay their taxes to the government, et cetera. So um, in the way we assess fund managers, we look at both what are they investing in and then how are they making those decisions and how are the companies running their business? So getting at both the what and the how is important. And if you do both of those, um, we think you can maintain a balance between the E, S, and G. They won't be an equal weighting all the time, but maybe it's less of a trade-off and more of a, of a level of comfort between taking on some, for example, governance risk because you're getting more environmental benefit. Um, but it's a matter of balancing, yeah, those different risk factors. Look, it's a tricky one, and I throw this question to you, Martin, because you know one of the sustainable development goals is around economic growth, and then you've got infrastructure, but then you've got climate action, and some of these things don't always align. I'm curious around your thoughts and how do you think about sustainability as a as a broader context? Well, I'm an engineer, and uh, which means I like building things, but I also understand that the Earth is a system, as a planet. And if we don't manage it sustainably, we're all in deep trouble. And I'd remind us all that it's, uh, it's not the planet that's in trouble, it's us. Uh, there have been five mass extinctions and there could be another one uh, and it could be us. So look, um, you can't, there, I'm a glass half full. You, you can always think of ways of positively solving issues, solving problems. And whether that's the, uh, application of technology and you've only got to look at what's happening with the cost of wind and solar I mean it's just extraordinary the reduction in costs that's happened over the last five years uh, or you can uh, apply good governance to address issues you know and what's gone in America in the last <laughs> three months around the election is just complete nonsense and it's a classic example of very poor governance on, on the part of the uh, a soon-to-be uh, last president. Um, these, you know, you've got to think about constructive, positive ways of solving these issues, whether it's um, at a global scale and on the environment or in a corporate sense, in a governance, you know, it's this situation, solving uh, societal uh, issues and ills. Um, and that's why I think corporations can play a very important role to do this through the sort of... Uh, uh, these sorts of processes and to be able to invest in these companies to me provides a good opportunity to do good there but also to make good financial returns all right that's a fantastic place to leave the conversation thank you very much for your time today martin and uh, alexis thank you alex thanks alex a very interesting conversation thank you for joining us All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.